I want to welcome everyone here, whether you're someone who's visiting for the first time or whether you're someone who's uh, been here a few times before or whether you're just like the furniture, you're here every week. I want to welcome you and I hope that you feel welcome today. Um, can you please bow your heads with me? Father in heaven, thank you so much for the great things, the wonderful things that you are doing. We want to thank you that you love us and that no matter how old we are, we're your kids. Help us to always remember that and help us to uh, honor everyone in the way that you honor us. We just ask that you would help us to understand more about you as we, we talk about your faithfulness today. Please send your angels and your Holy Spirit in here so that there will be nothing that distracts us from what you've brought this morning. And I ask that you would please cover me and help me to only speak the words that come from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Sometimes it's hard to trust people, isn't it? At least I find that. I remember back when I was 22 and I was finishing up my time at college. And uh, you probably already know this, but when someone is at university, even if it's a third time round, rarely do they have money to spare. If, in fact, if anything, when someone's going to university, they probably owe money. And well, I had just graduated in April as a teacher, but if, in case you're not aware, in North America, the school year is a bit different. It doesn't start until late August or early September. And so I, I, I sort of finished, but my money pot, my, my bank account, it was running out of cash. And I wasn't making very much money at the time. In fact, I can't even remember what I was doing, but it definitely was not anything glorious. I can't even remember what it was, and it probably was not paying my bills whatsoever. So what should I do? For me to have flown home, I had a decision to make. It would have cost me well over $1,000 because my parents lived 4,000 kilometers away. There wasn't really much work for me where my parents lived. It was an area of high unemployment, but there wasn't very much for me where I was at the college either, and because I wasn't a student anymore, I didn't get some of the benefits like cheaper rent anymore. I did have a nice car that I had bought at an auction a few years before. At least it was a nice car aside from the dent that someone put it in. It wasn't me, someone smashed into me. It was a Mazda 929. I don't think you guys had those here, but it was a really nice car. But as most people know, cars are not investments, are they? Especially not dented ones. And so as I started to look at my options, I decided that the best thing for me to do was to sell everything I had and move back. I didn't really want to at all, but to move back to my parents' house until I got a proper job as a teacher. Salary, something that I had only heard of at the time. So I sold my car to a very kind lecturer. I sold my furniture to a young woman for about $200. And I sold my fridge and my stereo system 
and another few things to a friend of mine that we, we hung out and we knew each other fairly well for about the same amount, around $200. Except when I say I sold my furniture and my fridge, well, here's the thing. Both the young woman and my friend, they took away these objects and they promised to pay me in the next few weeks. But the next few weeks went by and I still didn't have anything. And so a day or two before I got on the plane, I found this girl and I said, can I have my money please? To which she apologized and said that oh, she couldn't get the money from her dad. I didn't have a house anymore or a car for that matter, not that the furniture could have fit into it. And as to my friend, well... He didn't have any money to give either. I don't think he had any money in the first place. And if he did have money, knowing him, he probably spent it on things that you should not ever spend money on. However, he promised that I would get it. I couldn't just take back all this stuff. I had nowhere to store it. You couldn't just take it on the plane. And well, I never did get the money back from either of them even though they had my bank account details. I still chat to the guy who's a friend of mine every few years, but I haven't broached the topic for a good 20 years, even though I'm tempted to. Well, when my, my dad found out about it, um, I was pretty, pretty angry about it. Uh, and he told me, look, if you want to help a friend and you can afford it, just give them the money, but never lend money to friends. Um, it's bad enough to lose money, to lose $400 when you actually do have money, how much worse it is when you don't have any money, which I did not. So when I say it's hard to trust people, take it from me, I can understand it is hard to trust people, even friends at times, isn't it? But today I'm going to talk to you about someone who is always faithful and keeps his promises, even when those who he makes promises with don't keep their end of the deal. Of course, I'm talking about God. Now, in case you weren't aware, this term, we're, we've been going through a series called How Great Is Our God? And so far we've talked about God's creativity and God's unfailing love. And today we are talking about God's faithfulness. We're talking about the attributes of God. And one of the best ways, and I, this week's been a crazy week, and I had all these ideas in my head, and in the end I thought about it and thought one of the best ways to look at how faithful God is, is by looking at how God promises Things And when he promises something, he follows through with it. And there's, there's thousands of promises in the Bible. And even though I haven't preached very much at Springwood on God's prophecies, I don't want you to think that I'm not into them because I actually really love prophecy. I actually love looking at how God's prophecies meticulously fit into history. Or for the ones that haven't happened yet, looking at how they might be fulfilled one day. But for the most part, I actually like talking and looking at these with people not so much 
in a big space like this, but I like looking at them in Bible studies where you can interact and you can interrupt if someone isn't quite understanding something or if somebody has something interesting to say. But as we're talking about how God keeps his promises, I want to talk to you today at looking at my favorite fulfilled prophecy that is in the Bible. And I think it'll work a treat today. Now, when Babylon conquered Jerusalem, the Jewish people were beside themselves with grief. Since the time of King Solomon, David's son, things had been going downhill for Israel. The mighty nation of Israel, just to recap, it had split into two nations, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The north was called Israel, the south was called Judah. And the Jews in the north, they really dropped the whole ball on God thing. And so the kings of the northern kingdom, along with all the people started worshiping idols and they worshiped them big time. And they made a temple in the capital city called Samaria. And it was to compete with the one in Jerusalem that God had set up. They then made multiple places of worship to a variety of idols. And they walked away from the true God. And they ended up getting into all sorts of immoral things. Because when you don't have God and you're like, you can justify pretty much anything. And in the end, having left God, they were not faithful to God. God allowed them to be captured by the Assyrians who took them away and dispersed them far and wide. Now, although the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom, did a better job at following God, they too slowly began to fall away from God. And in the end... They believed that God would just protect them even though they basically weren't doing anything that he was saying. And so, even though they were warned, the Babylonians took out Jerusalem. They completely destroyed it. They took away all the people except for the dregs of society to Babylon. And even though they brought these... Israelite, these followers of God, promised to follow God. They were not faithful. So the question they had as they were now captured and they had this life of completely different place, watching all these terrible things take place, they had a question on their mind. What about the promise that God gave them about sending a promised hero who would be descended from King David and bring about God's true kingdom. What about that whole thing? They were wondering, did we mess it up? They were terrified that they had messed up because they were unfaithful. And so they wondered, would God actually be faithful to them? Would God still follow through? And as I mentioned, in the end, they ended up losing everything and went into captivity. You can look at that story in Jeremiah 39. We're not going to talk about that bit today. They lose their possessions. They lose their family and friends, their temple, their freedom. You can't get much lower than that. But then you have this guy named Daniel, who because he was faithful to God, he ends up being one of the top administrators in Babylon. And he gets to this position basically because 
he is faithful to God and God gives him the gift of dream interpretation and prophecy. And of course, because he's a very, very intelligent, wise, and uh, he listened to what God said. These gifts of being able to interpret dreams and have prophecies, they come in really handy in an administrator under this king. When the king gets this crazy dream about the future and he demands his administrators to tell him what the dream was and tell him what it means or else people will start dying. Sometimes we complain about our politicians. Well, <laughs> but Daniel, he actually um, tells him what the dream was. He interprets the dream and he reveals that the dream is actually about the future. And I'm not going to get into details of this prophecy today. You can look at it in Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 8. And in these prophecies that Daniel gets, God reveals that there's Babylon. And yeah, it's fantastic. But after Babylon, there's going to be three consecutive empires that are going to rule that part of the world. And God actually reveals the details and the characteristics of these empires Hundreds of years, for some thousands of years, before these empires even turn up. And he finds out more of these things in later dreams that he has and visions. And in these prophecies, you have the, the empires of the Medes and Persians, and they're described in detail. Follow, after them, you have the, the empire of Alexander the Great, and then his generals, and then you have the Roman Empire is described. And finally, you have the small kingdoms of Europe. And it all ends with a hint of God's kingdom taking over everything in the end. And all these kingdoms come about with their descriptions. Daniel doesn't live to see any of them, but we can look at them in history. And we see that the descriptions were accurate about these things just as God had promised now, think about the exiles and Daniel. They felt like they had no hope, like there was no future. And yet God shows them what's going to happen. And these are all great prophecies. But in my opinion, those prophecies, and they're often the ones that, especially at Adventist Church, we really talk about them a lot. They're actually not my favorite one. I don't think that it's the most exciting one. Because Daniel and the exiles, they would have been devastated because their own nation had been torn apart. And worse, they've been gutted because as the descendants of, of uh, Adam and Eve and the descendants of Abraham and King David, they had all been waiting for this promised hero, this Messiah, who was going to turn up and bring about God's kingdom. And they were thinking... How can this even happen now? Our own kingdom's gone. How is this possible? And Daniel is crying out to God. He's begging God. He's actually saying, God, God, sorry. We're pleased. We're so sorry for all the dumb things we've done. We've been so unfaithful. Please, please, please don't turn your backs on us. Please tell us when. Are, are you going to fulfill this promise of yours? When is it going to happen? And in Daniel chapter 9, this all takes place. 
He's crying out to God about this very thing. And God sends an angel to give Daniel and he passes this on to the exiles to give them hope about this promise. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And the angel says in verse 24, should be up on the screen. There we go. He says, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Let me very quickly translate this into regular English and summarize it for you. Now, when dealing with prophecy in the Bible, it's been found that when God says days, it's the equivalent of years. Like when the Israelites, met, uh, they complained for 40 days in the desert, even though God was giving them tons of stuff. And God says, you complain for 40 days, you can have 40 years in the desert. And he does the same thing in Ezekiel as well. So 70 weeks... In terms of days, if you were to count out, well, 70 times 7, that's 490. So this is talking about 490 years. So what's going to happen over 490 years? Well, it's the length of time that God's people have to stop mucking around. They've just spent the last few thousand years being stupid, basically. They keep saying, yeah, yeah, we're going to follow you, God. And then they follow other people. Yeah, yeah, sorry, we're going we're gonna to follow you. And then they keep following. It's like the kid saying, yeah, I won't take any cookies. And his hand's in the cookie jar. That's what the Israelites were like. God says, you have 490 years of getting your act together. And then the Messiah is going to come. It's the length of time that God's given for them to stop misrepresenting him. That's why it says to bring an end, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, and to reconcile. It's actually the length of God's patience. On a side topic, some of you might know this. You know how Peter says to Jesus, how many times should we forgive someone? And he says, oh, seven, right, God? That's your number. He says, seven, Jesus. We just have to forgive someone seven times and we're good. And what does Jesus say? He says, no, not seven. Seventy times seven. What's seventy times seven? Four hundred and ninety. Peter would have gotten that because he was Jewish. That's how long God actually gives the nation of Israel. It's how long he has patience with them to get their act together and represent him properly. Not be perfect, but just represent. So why do they get this much time? So that they could bring in everlasting righteousness to seal up vision and prophecy and anoint the most holy. What's the, what are all the, pro, if, if you've looked at any prophecies in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, every single prophecy, it is all wrapped around one promise, one focus. And that focus is, is that one day the promised one, the hero, the Messiah is going to come 
and he's going to reverse what Adam and Eve did when they sinned. He's going to reverse it. So that's what the end of the fulfillment of the 490 years is, is the messianic promise. The angel is telling Daniel when the promised Messiah was going to finish his job. That's exactly what Daniel wanted to know. And it goes on on verse 25. And he says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again, the wall even in troublesome times. Okay, next summary and translation. This is saying when this timeline starts. The timeline doesn't start when the angel tells Daniel. He says, no, that's not the start point. This is the start point. It says from the going forth of the command, right there. Going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until the Messiah. There will be seven weeks and and 62 weeks. So the countdown of the 490 years begins when there is a command to rebuild Jerusalem. Now the exiles, Daniel and those with them, had watched or heard while they were in captivity their beloved city and temple completely get destroyed. It's a pile of rubble when Daniel gets this message. The Babylonians, they smashed down everything. There wasn't, it wasn't even worth living in the place. They smashed it so much. And this was the case. That happened in 586 BC. The vision that Daniel gets is several decades after the destruction. And, and as I said, it's a pile of rubble. But God tells Daniel that a day is coming where a command's going to be given for it to be rebuilt. And Daniel probably would have been thinking... Really? I don't think the Babylonians want anyone to touch Jerusalem because Jerusalem caused them so many problems. But that's what God says. God says one day a command's going to be given for them to rebuild it. And when that happens, that's when this countdown starts. So what's with the seven weeks and the 62 weeks? What that's all about? Well, seven plus 62 is... 69, right? Now, there's a reason why the Bible doesn't just say 69. Why is it? Why do we have to do maths? I always ask that question. <laughs> Not a huge fan of maths. It has its uses, of course. Why do we have to? Why do we have to even add? Well, there's a reason why. We're not going to get into it today. We don't have time. You can come and ask me another time, and I'll tell you why he doesn't just say 69 weeks. But. 69 weeks translates into 483 years. Okay? Just getting a bit more precise. So when a command to rebuild Jerusalem is given, 483 years later, the Messiah is going to turn up. Obviously, Daniel does not get to see this play out. He's an old man. When he gets this message, the command hasn't even been given yet. And it's going to last hundreds of years before the Messiah turns up. You want to know how faithful God is, how God keeps his promises. This prophecy was written around 530 BC, before Christ. 
at the end of Daniel's life, when he's an old man, several kings later, Daniel's long dead, several kings later, when Persia takes over Babylon, and even more time goes by, a king called Artaxerxes, he basically gets the impression, and we're not going to get into it, but he makes a royal proclamation in the autumn, specific, we know the exact time of year, the autumn of the year 457 BC to rebuild Jerusalem. Let the Jews rebuild Jerusalem and give them whatever they need to do it. Decades after the prophecy was given, well, let's see how this plays out. If that's 457 BC... You add 483 years to that, that gives us the autumn of 27 AD. Any guesses what happens in 27 AD? Jesus gets baptized. He gets baptized, and guess what? When we, the historians look at stuff, it was at that same time of the year in autumn. Crazy. So if you're a Christian and you believe that Jesus was the Messiah, so far how faithful is God's promise to Daniel? Crazy faithful. To the year faithful. But wait, there's more. So Daniel 9, it continues, skipping verse 26 to the start of verse 27. And it says, then he, this is the Messiah, shall confirm a covenant with many in one week. There's that one week, that seven years. What's with that seven years? That's what it's talking about. But in the middle of the week, he will bring an end to sacrifice and offering. Okay. So at the beginning of the last week, in 27 AD, the Messiah is going to start his mission. And seven years later, at the end of the week, by AD 34, he's going to confirm a covenant, which means he's going to fulfill his promise. He's going to complete his mission. 34. But here's the thing. Jesus' earthly ministry, it didn't go for seven years, did it? He wasn't walking around alive on earth once he got baptized for seven years, he, he died three and a half years later, right? That's when he's crucified. So how can it be seven years? How does this fit in? Well, hold on. It says right here, but in the middle of the week, he will bring an end to sacrifice and offering. Well, if a prophetic week is seven years long, what's the middle of seven? Three and a half, 3.5 years. How long was Jesus' ministry on earth before he was crucified? Three and a half years. And the thing is, when Jesus actually dies, it records in Mark 16, 38, that there was this veil that separated the most holy part of the temple with the other part of the temple that was holy. And that veil represented the separation between man and and God. And it also represented the sacrifice that was needed to make yourself right with God. And that actually rips as Jesus dies. 
And what does that signify? It signified the end of the daily sacrifices and the separation between man and God. It says here, he will bring an end to sacrifice. So the vision that God gave Daniel, Daniel is pretty spot on, isn't it? Very spot on. So what about the other three and a half years? What's with that? What's with the 34 AD? If Jesus dies three and a half years in, why does it say his work is finished in seven years? What happens in the year 34 AD? Well, the early church, it actually gets formed about 50 days after Jesus um, dies. And although Christianity was only in Jerusalem among the Jewish people to begin with, within a couple of years, it actually starts to spread outside of Jerusalem. And it actually stays within the Jewish people until, guess what date? 34 AD. Why? What happens at 34 AD? Stephen... There's your signal. (laughs) Stephen was killed. Stephen the martyr is killed. And the followers of Jesus, they flee Jerusalem because they don't want to get killed. And what happens is they start spreading everywhere. And guess what? The gospel of Jesus starts spreading to the rest of the world. It starts spreading to people who are not Jewish. And the mission of Jesus was not just to save the Jewish nation, even though a lot of them thought that's what it was. It was actually to save the world. And salvation truly started spreading to the entire world when Stephen was killed at the end of 490 years on the dot. How faithful is God to the promises he says he's going to keep? And the thing is, God arranged everything. So Jesus came exactly when he was supposed to. He did everything that he was supposed to do, regardless of the fact that the religious leaders, they weren't prepared. They were so focused on themselves. And that's a lesson for us, not to be so wrapped up in your own things that you forget what God's trying to tell you. But though they had been told the exact time, the exact year, the exact season... When he was going to arrive, they missed it. But God followed through even though they were not faithful. Can we trust him? Yes. Even though we can't even trust ourselves, he's faithful. The story of Jesus, what he does, what he says, it makes me know and makes me believe that he is trustworthy. And it shows me, though, but that even though... I screw up all the time. And I really do. I mess up all the time. Just ask my family. Actually, no, don't, don't ask them. <laughs> I mess up all the time. The Bible says that God actually has faith in us. We don't deserve it. But he actually trusts us. I wouldn't trust me if I was him. But it says that he does. He actually has faith in me. He actually has faith in you, even though we we don't deserve it. We always take for granted. We always nod our heads and say, yeah, God's faithful. But God actually has faith in us. 
Scripture tells us he trusts us because he promises that we can be faithful if we let him in our lives. So my, last, my question for you today is, how do you respond to this? When things are hard for you, and I know there's people here who are going through some really, really hard things. How do you respond when the Bible says he's going to take care of you? That, that doesn't mean that he's going to make everything in your life perfect. But it means that he is going to take care of you. If you're, you're wondering, how are you going to make ends meet? Like, how, how are you ever going to be a different person? How are you going to pay your bills? Sometimes things don't go the way that we wish that they would. But at the end of the day, if God says he's going to help us and take care of us, if he says that he loves us and that you are fearfully and wonderfully made and that one day he's going to take you with him to heaven... What's our response to that? Do we trust him? I hope your answer is yes. God bless.